This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. We're starting a sermon series of preaching through what's called the lectionary. If you're not familiar with that term, it's simply a cycle of readings uh, rooted in the ancient church that a three-year cycle from which we get our scripture readings. So both the Old Testament reading today, the Psalm today, and the gospel were all from the lectionary. Um, and two of the advantages of preaching on this passage is number one, we're preaching in unison with many preachers around the world today that are preaching the same text. Second one is that as a preacher, you don't get to pick your preaching passage. So here it is, here's the hand you're dealt with, um, deal with it. Um, so, which makes it kind of exciting and challenging, but also scary. So please pray with me and for me. So <clears throat> thank you, Lord, for this passage of scripture, which is filled with challenges, filled with um, just really stern teaching, but then also just incredible grace and mercy. The good news of the gospel is here that will set us free, free to run in the way of your commandments, as the psalmist says. So guide us, fill us with your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. So when I was 17 years old, I started going to a brand new church. I was a new follower of Jesus and um, just started going to this church and started hearing the gospel. And there was a guy named Ralph there who was an older guy. He was on what was called the elder board. And he was this big guy with a crew cut haircut. And he always wore a dark blue suit. And he had a nice blue tie on with a pin in the middle of the tie that said, try God. And that's what he was always telling people, try God. And so one day he stood up and he gave a testimony and he said, <clears throat> I tried Jesus and I tell you, everybody, it was like following Jesus is like going down, riding on your bicycle down a hill with the wind at your back. And I thought to myself, I like this guy. I like this church. I like this easy Jesus. And then I started reading the Bible and I realized, you know, there's some things, in, some things in there that aren't very easy at all. Like, as a 17-year-old, I read Jesus saying, this is the greatest of commandments. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Not just like 30%. I don't know where I was at, maybe 17% of loving God with my whole heart, but with all your heart, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And as a 17-year-old kid, and still as a 63-year-old adult, I'm pretty wrapped up around my own selfishness. That's hard. Then I read things like uh, caring for the outcast, caring for the poor, the uh, feeding the hungry. And again, I was really into hanging out with cool people who could increase my influence with other cool people. And I read things like, if any man looks at a woman to lust after her, he's committed adultery with her in his heart. And I realized, oh, that's really difficult. I don't know if I'm ever going to do that. And it, it, it's a principle that applies to women as well, to objectify people for our own selfish purposes. And I realized, I don't know if I could do that. And actually, to hear the biblical teaching that sexual intimacy is reserved in covenant of marriage between a man and a woman, that was hard. That's hard for everybody to hear, not just certain groups of people. And I realized, this, this is hard. There is no easy Jesus. And I wanted to tell Ralph, you know, when I moved on from that church, I, went, I was thinking about this, and I wanted to go back and say, Ralph, it's not easy at all. Some days it's like going up a hill with the wind in your face and the sun beating down on you and rocks in your shoes, and you've got a flat tire. It's hard, Ralph. It's not easy. 
How about you? If you're trying to follow Jesus, now you might say, well, I'm not trying really hard, or I'm trying really hard. Have you found it to be easy? Or do you find it to be hard? I would imagine most of you, on most days, you found certain aspects of following Jesus hard, difficult. How do we follow the real Jesus? Well, in this passage, where Jesus teaches pretty much improvisationally, that doesn't mean it's not thoughtful or intentional, but it's in the moment, off the cuff, deeply from his learning of Scripture, he teaches us a way, an approach, that's actually in a counterintuitive way going to unlock something for us, unlock love and desire and reorder our desires so we will actually want to do the things that Jesus asks us to do, even the hard things. So I want to ask you to join me um, in walking through this passage. We're going to look through it just kind of verse by verse by verse and walk through it really carefully, intentionally. It's found on page 876 in your Bible. So please turn there with me. And notice what Jesus does. He gives us two really quick examples of hard things. Things that are really hard about his message. And he just goes boom, boom. Now, these two things are really basic to life. They're, they're things that all of us deal with all of the time. The first one is the way that we harm others. And then the second one is the way that when others harm us and how we respond to this. Has, has anybody harmed anybody ever in their life? Has anybody anybody been harmed by anybody else in your life? Both of those things are just so basic to our humanity. So look at verse 1, which Jesus starts with hard thing number 1. And he says, he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come. Ain't that the truth? Did any of you struggle with any temptations this week? I did. They are sure to come. Literally, that word there, sin, means stumbling block. You're, they're things that will cause you to stumble, to trip up. They're going to happen to all of us. Sometimes we give in so regularly, we don't even know we're being tempted anymore. But that's even a worse state. And notice what Jesus says in the end of verse 1. He says, but woe to the one through whom they come. So I was reading this and, and preparing for this sermon, and I thought, whoa, this is, this is worse. Like, the way I live my life can cause others to stumble. Temptations can come through me. And Jesus, re in the next verse, he's going to refer to the little ones, which means children, but it means more than children, too. It means anybody that could be a new believer, anybody that's physically weak or spiritually weak or morally weak or morally weak in a certain area, somebody that's vulnerable. We can trip those people up. So what Jesus is saying here is that there is no such thing as a personal sin. There is no such thing as a private sin. None of us sin privately. We're part of an ecosystem called humanity. We're even part of an ecosystem called creation. And it's all tied together. So when I sin, it's like dumping a little bit of toxin upstream. And where's it going to go? It's always going to go downstream. It will always impact other people in ways that I do not imagine. 
And notice what Jesus says, how seriously he takes this. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he would cast into the sea than he should cause one of these little ones to sin, one of these little ones to stumble. That's how seriously he takes this. Now, you read up to verse 2, and you might be thinking, great, Jesus, go after these people that hurt your little ones. I want you to get them. I want you to hang a millstone around their neck. But notice what he says next. He says, pay attention to yourselves. Those words, I've just been thinking about those words all week. You know, we like to say, I want to change the world. I want to make a difference. I want to make the world a better place. Well, here Jesus gives us a little clue where to start. Start with yourself. Draw a little circle, put yourself in it, and say, Lord, I want you to change the world and start with everything in this circle. Start with me. Pay attention to yourselves. Pay attention to the way that you might be harming others by your attitudes, by your actions, to the toxins that you might be pouring into the river of life. So that's the first hard thing Jesus says, the way we cause harm to others. And then he gives another little example, a little vignette. And he says this, if your brother sins, now here's one guarantee of life, people will hurt you. People will mistreat you. They will misunderstand you. They will disappoint you. They will not come through for you, and it will hurt Every person in this room has experienced that and will experience that. What does Jesus say? The first thing he says is rebuke him. This is about forgiveness, but Jesus, notice what Jesus says. Forgiveness doesn't mean you pretend it didn't happen. It doesn't mean you pretend it didn't hurt. It doesn't mean that, that you just ignore it. It doesn't mean you don't speak up about it and speak the truth about it. Actually, speaking the truth and forgiving are woven together in Jesus' understanding of forgiveness. They both belong together. You cannot separate them. But then Jesus goes on to say, if he sins and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times, the number seven isn't literal. It's a symbolic Bible number, seven days of the week. It's kind of a day of, of just kind of like perfect. So if somebody colossally messes up and hurts you, Jesus says, if he comes to you saying, I repent, you must forgive him. That's really hard. Does anybody know how fun it is to not forgive somebody? I mean, you say you don't like it, but I, you do. We like it. <laughs> Frederick Beeker, Beekner, a Christian author who died this past month, he said this. To, he talked about unforgiveness and how fun it is to lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to savor to the last toothsome morsel. Both the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back. In many ways, it is a feast fit for a king. And then he says, but the chief drawback is, is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. Is there someone that you need to forgive or a group of people that you need to forgive that you're smacking your lips over the grievances? It's hard. 
Is there someone with a, Jesus looked in your heart and said, you got to forgive that. You must forgive. You need to rebuke. You need to speak the truth. You need to be honest about the hurt and the pain, but you must forgive. That's really hard. So he says these two really hard things about how we might harm others or how others might harm us. And then notice what the disciples say. So in verse 5, it says, The apostles said to the Lord, Increase our faith. <clears throat> in other words, we don't have what it takes to do this, Jesus. You're asking something too hard. The equipment, the resources, the spiritual ability that I have right now, it's not adequate. And Jesus says, basically, look, I know that. And you don't need big faith. You need little faith. Look what he says. If you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Now, from what I understand, the mulberry tree that Jesus was referring to, which is probably right there, he's probably teaching, and there's a mulberry tree right there, and he says, that, take that mulberry tree. I understand the root system goes really deep and really wide, so it's basically impossible to uproot a full-grown mulberry tree. So Jesus is saying, this is impossible. And he's speaking hyperbolically, and he's saying, but bring your little faith to me. I like working with little faith. I like working with people who have little faith. That's all I do. I'm really good at it. I'm really good at working with little faith people. So just bring it to me. And then he launches into this little parable, which is almost nobody's favorite parable, and almost nobody really lists this as a little parable, but, and it's, it's kind of an unimpressive, very simple story, but actually, I think it's really brilliant the way Jesus does this. So verses 7 through 10, let me just give you a little background because he's talking about masters and servants. And sometimes when people read this, they have really legitimate questions about well, does the Bible say that slavery is okay? Does the Bible condone slavery? So it's really important for us to understand the historical culture. Jesus, in his culture, knew nothing of what we've experienced in this culture with chattel slavery, which no matter what you think, where you're at with racism, where you're at with, with whatever you think about it, can we all agree that chattel slavery was an abomination and it was horrible? But what Jesus is talking about is a very different situation. So in his day, when people would fall into debt, they could go to jail for this. They could be in big trouble. So there was a way provided to work off the debt. You would bond yourself to a wealthy landowner, and you would work off your debt. Now, we know the Old Testament, which some people think is just so cruel and so backwards, was actually way ahead of its time in providing a merciful way to, to limit the amount of years that you could serve as a bondservant until you were set free. So God made that provision, which was actually very merciful and actually protected the vulnerable. So that's what Jesus is talking about in this situation. He's talking about that kind of relationship. Now, let me read that section again, this little paragraph. He says, Will any of one of you who has a servant, that's the person who was in debt, plowing or keeping sheep, say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table. Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he, think the servant, does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? 
So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Let me give you an example of what this looks like. So a couple years ago, a couple young teenage kids, maybe 13, 14 years old, they came to my house and they knocked on the door and they asked if they could mow my yard. Now, I like mowing my own yard. It's one of the few mechanical handyman things that I can actually do well. So I got to have some dignity and pride in my ability to take care of my yard. So I think I do a pretty good job. I said, how much? They said, $20. I said, well, you know, I'm really in favor of enterprising entrepreneurs in the neighborhood. So I want to give these guys a start. Maybe they'll be business owners someday. Maybe they'll be millionaires. So I want to give them a start. So they mowed my yard. They did not do a good job, you know. (laughs) I mow really straight lines, and I get everything. They were crooked lines. It was kind of haphazard. They just didn't, they missed some spots. It was kind of lazy. I paid them the $20. Now imagine they said, hey, how about if you gave us $40? And how about, would you mind if we just came in and um, just kind of sat on our, your couch, propped our, feet, propped our feet up, maybe you give us some juice, maybe you give us a loaf of bread and some cheese, and uh, maybe we just hang out all day. Now, I could probably say, you know, just want you guys to know, I don't owe you any of that. Let's be clear. I don't owe you. If I want to do anything more, I might. I'm not really feeling it right now, but I might. But if I do that, it's not because I owe you. It's because I'm just really a gracious person. Now, I want you to know, I was not a gracious person. I didn't give them any more than that. I didn't give them a tip, but... Do you see what Jesus is saying here? He's saying there aren't two kinds of Christians, the worthy Christians and then the unworthy Christians, the superstars, the elite, and then the non-elite, the strugglers, the stumblers. There's only one kind. What does he call them? Unworthy servants. Even if you do, or if I do, everything I'm supposed to do as a Christian, that was just what I was supposed to do. God doesn't owe me anything. Now, you might say, well, what about somebody like Mother Teresa? I mean, wasn't she elite? Wasn't she a superstar? Well, she is an incredible model for us, a woman of virtue, a woman of love for the poor and the broken, and the sick, and the dying. Amazing example to us. But have you ever read Mother Teresa's journals? Her journals that were kept secret to only her and her spiritual director most of her life, and where some of them were published? You find a woman who often deeply struggled with experiencing the presence of God. She didn't struggle obeying God, but she struggled experiencing the presence of God. She felt very many dark nights of the soul. She felt very alone. She felt bereft sometimes. You'd think, well, she probably felt Jesus' presence all the time. No, she didn't. Long stretches of spiritual dryness, spiritual desolation. 
Jesus is saying, there's only one kind of Christian. It's the we have done only our duty kind of Christian. And if you're honest, most of us didn't do that well this week, did you? I mean, I'm looking at my, I was reviewing my own life, so I'll ask you, how did you handle temptation this week? Give yourself an A, A plus, 100, 100 out of 100, five-star review for yourself? Well, maybe not. How did you handle the harm that was done to you? How are you dealing with that? I would venture to say, every person in this room, we are all struggling and stumblers. And yet, look what the heart of the gospel is. The heart of the gospel is this. God doesn't owe us anything. I'm not entitled to anything. But God's very nature is to be gracious, and not only to be gracious, but to be lavishly gracious. Let me read to you a section from the New Testament book of Ephesians. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. God is not holding anything back from you, nothing back from you, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless for him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself. In other words, before the world even started, God knew you, God saw you, and God chose to love you. It gets even better. Verse 7, in him, talking about Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. Lavish. You know, he has. We have done a pretty below standard job of trying to take care of God's yard. But he invites us in. He invites us into his very kitchen and his living room. And he says, go ahead, put up your feet. Let me get you something to drink. Let me get you something to eat. That's what we do every time around the Eucharist table. That's what we do. God feeds us. He welcomes us. He feeds us. All because of his lavish grace. And it, as we experience that grace, as we live into it, as we receive it over and over again and live a life of just saying, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you again, Jesus. Thank you for all eternity. As we do that, as we live that way, it will begin to reorder our disordered desires. It will begin to melt the hardness of our heart. It will begin to melt our rebellious spirit. It will begin to help us see and repent of the ways we cause harm to others. It will give us mercy to those who have harmed us. It will transform us from glory to glory, as St. Paul says. Jesus may be asking you to do some hard things. Maybe he's going to ask you to do some hard things this week. Maybe you're like, I don't know. I don't know if I want to do that. But remember this. God owes you nothing, but he wants to lavish you with grace that will humble you 
and then exalt you. That will show your weakness and your need, but then fill you with his strength. It will reveal that following him is impossible. But we come to him with that impossibility, that impossibleness. We come to him with our little faith, and we hear in him all things are possible. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.